If you have your Bible, if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, and I would encourage you to make sure that you have your Bible in front of you, or if you're looking on your phone, make sure it's in front of you, because I'm going to be going back and forth through this text, and we're going to give you a lot of text today. Um, if you've got a pen, you might want to take notes, but if you can't take notes and listen at the same time, you can go back and listen to it again, because I'm going to move fast and I'm going to talk fast, and you're going to listen fast, because i got a lot to get through today. Today we come, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12, probably the most controversial, the most complicated, most debated passage in all of Scripture. So I need you to kind of put your thinking caps on. We made extra coffee, so get you some if you need it. To say this passage is difficult is a colossal understatement. Uh, the language of this text that we're going to read in a moment is shocking. It's frankly terrifying. Uh, and there's no stronger warning in Hebrews. So I told you before, there's, we're going through Hebrews verse by verse. So if you're visiting with us, you came on the day when we're in the hardest passage. So congratulations. Uh, we started in chapter 1, verse 1. We've gone all the way through. There's five really strong warnings in Hebrews. This is the third one, which is the strongest of, of them all. And we're go we've got a lot to cover, so we're going to just, you know, no funny stories or anything. We're just going to jump right into it. Uh, the author has spent five chapters that we've gone through showing the glories of Jesus, right? We've seen it from the very beginning all the way up to this text. The glories of Jesus the salvation that he's given. He's shown Jesus as the fulfillment of the old covenant elements, uh, the high priest and the blood sacrifice and all of those things. And we know that he's writing to professing Hebrew Christians who were tempted to go back to the old way, go back to the law, go back to the temple, go back to the sacrifices. And his refrain through the whole book is Jesus is better. Hold fast to your profession. Even though you're suffering persecution, even though there are hardships and trials, Hold on to Christ. He is better. In chapter 5, when he uh, is talking about Jesus being the high priest and the perfect high priest, the fulfillment of all that that symbolized and shown forth, when he came to the, the text in verse 10 of chapter 5 that said Jesus is this high priest in the order of Melchizedek, he stopped right there, and he'll pick that up again in chapter 7, but he stops teaching and he starts warning. In chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through 620, is just this big warning to the readers. And then he'll pick back up teaching about Jesus in chapter 7. Last week we did chapter 5, verse 11 through 6-3. So I want to read that text again because it's part of the text we're going to study today. Are you all with me? All right. I like the way you all said that. All right. Here we go. It says, this is what we did last week. It says, about this, meaning Jesus the high priest according to, the, according to Melchizedek, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained 
trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, this is chapter 6, verse 1, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, Messiah, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. So we talked about this text last week. Though these Hebrew, professing Hebrew Christians had once loved the gospel and stood for the gospel, were persecuted for the gospel and held fast to Jesus, they understood that they had a better hope in Jesus. They were being persecuted and they were being persecuted because they were professing Jesus and this led them to drift back into immaturity, into the old covenant elements. And they were riding the fence now with this minimal Christian profession. They had become dull, it says. Sluggish is the word. They become dull of hearing. They were spiritually immature, needing milk, not solid food. Ultimately, we said last week, they were living like, they weren't living like Jesus is better. They were going back to the foundational things rather than holding fast to Jesus, who is the fulfillment. Now, as we continue this passage, what we're going to find is it's connected. It's not a separate passage from what we just read. The warning of apostasy, what we're calling apostasy is falling away, is connected to the danger of spiritual immaturity. The writer presents in this passage that spiritual immaturity, what we just talked about in the previous passage, is the first step toward apostasy. And so he is warning The command here in the text we're going to read and the text we read last week, go on to maturity. It's dangerous to stay where you're at. So he says, we're going to leave these elementary things behind and we're going to go on to maturity if God permits, verse 3. Then in verse 4 he says, because for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, the same word translated dull earlier, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. That'll be our text for today. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, I know there's a, there's a whole lot in this passage. God, I pray that you would give us clarity today, that you would give us uh, your spirit come and apply these truths to our heart. God, that you would make sure that everything I say is what you would have these people to hear. Not my own mind, not my own opinion, God, but what your word proclaims. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first part of this passage, what we did last week, is a warning for the Hebrew readers that they shouldn't be dull of hearing. They can't stay there. They can't stay in spiritual immaturity. And then connected it with this passage, which is really just one section, 
The writer is saying, if they continue to be dull of hearing, continue in this immature state without going on to maturity, without holding fast to Jesus as the fulfillment of all the foundational things, he's saying you're in danger. You're in danger of falling away, in danger of apostasy. He's warning them today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart like the wilderness generation did. He said that in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Now, before we examine the text and work through each phrase and each verse, let's just go ahead and address the elephant that's in the room, saying it's impossible to renew them to repentance makes us uncomfortable. And frankly, that's what the writer intends. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. That's what warnings do. It's not much of a warning if it doesn't make you uncomfortable. There is a threshold. When crossed, there is no coming back. That's supposed to make you sit up and go, whoa, what? What do you mean by that? Now, over the last six years that I've been here at this church, we've walked verse by verse through many books of the Bible. If you've been here any time at all, you should know what the Bible teaches about the security of the believer. We hold to it. The Bible teaches it. This passage does not teach that genuinely born-again, Holy Spirit-indwelled Christians can lose their eternal gift. Understanding that, however, does not give you or me or anyone else the right to do interpretive gymnastics with what the text says in order to take the teeth out of the warning so we can feel better. Okay? You with me? Yeah, we'll see. This is a real warning. It is intended to make you feel uncomfortable. Some need to feel uncomfortable when they hear this. This is a pastor pleading with his congregation to hold on to your hope in Jesus Christ. He doesn't know who's saved or who's lost in, his, in this congregation. There will always be tares growing among the wheat, Jesus said. And some people in this group, these Hebrew professing Christians, had already departed the faith and gone back to Judaism. He's warning everyone in the church. So we must apply this text the way that the author intends and take the warning to heart. It is for all of us. The point of this text, just to give you the bottom line at the beginning, the point of this text is not about eternal security. It's about the same thing every other warning in Hebrews has taught us. Persevering and enduring in faith to the end is the evidence that you have been born again. So, we must press on toward the goal. We must strive to enter into his rest, just as he's told us many times before. We must hold fast to our confession, hold fast to our hope in Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling us to do. So let's begin with the first part and look at the warnings subject. Who is this talking about? That's what we need to get right off the bat. I'm going to spend most of my time on the first two points. The last two I'm just going to breeze through. So if we get there, if we get to the end of point two and we only got like 10 minutes, don't freak out. We're all going to, we're going to watch the game. Don't worry. It's going to be fun. We have to figure out who he's talking about. He says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come 
and then have fallen away, and then he gives the warning. Who is he talking about here? The author uses five participles, really, to describe these people who fall away, and it's impossible to restore them to repentance. Now, because these descriptions, I mean, let's be honest with each other, they sound like they describe true Christians. They really do. Many take them to be describing true Christians and therefore believe this passage teaches that a born-again person and dwell with the Holy Spirit can lose their salvation. Now, I don't agree with that, but I can sure see how some would interpret this passage that way. Problem is, if you hold that interpretation, it means once you lose it, it's gone forever. There's no coming back. You're one and done. There's no jumping in, jumping back out, jumping back in. Jump. Nope. If you fall away, impossible to renew them to repentance. So who are these people? That's what we need to figure out first. Here's my thesis, and I'm going to prove it through the text. You ready? Uh, well, we're going to do it anyway. I don't care. <laughs> they are members of the covenant community, members of the church who profess Jesus, who look like everyone else, who act like everyone else, who maybe even think that they are believers, but they are not born again. There are people who closely associate and are identified with the church and have been so for a long time. The text forces me to this conclusion. Let me show you why. All the way through the letter of Hebrews, we start in chapter 1, verse 1, and now we're here in chapter 6. All the way through this letter, the writer has spoken to the reader in two different ways. He's spoken in the first person, saying we and us. He said, let us do such and such a thing, or we will do such and such a thing if, if God permits. Or he's spoken in the second person, saying if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Or if you must do such and such a thing. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, he, he talked specifically to his readers and he said, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, describing them this way. But here in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, for the first time in the letter, he talks to the reader about somebody else. He says, they and them and those who do this rather than saying you or us. And after this warning, after these verses, the writer goes immediately back and starts using you and us again. Look at verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, yet, and then he changes back. In your case, reader, beloved, those who are loved, we feel sure of better things. And what things is he sure of about you? Things that belong to salvation. Do you see it? According to the writer, the descriptions in verses 4 and 5, tasted the good word, enlightened, and uh, the warning, the falling away in verse 6, are not the things that belong to salvation. Do you see that? Are you with me? I told you, you better get some coffee. In verse 9, he's saying to them, I've told you about them, but we feel sure of better things about you. Things that belong to salvation about you. 
So when we look at these, um, at, at, we look at these, these descriptions, we'll call them that, based on the contextual evidence, though these descriptions are admittedly hard to explain, difficult to explain, the author himself says these are not the things that belong to salvation. Now let's look at them quickly, because I know what you're thinking. I'm not a prophet, but I know what I would be thinking. And then we'll talk about it some more. I want to show you why they sound so much like a Christian. He says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, powers of the ages to come. That's how he describes it. To be enlightened. I take that to mean they have come to understand the truth. They comprehend the gospel. They comprehend and understand the message of the gospel. They are very well taught. And they understand it all to be true. They've tasted the heavenly gift. People differ on what the gift is. I'm inclined to think it's salvation. It's salvation in Jesus, the gift. They've tasted it. They've sampled it. They come into contact with this gift. They've seen it in other people's lives. They, they, they've seen the transformation that salvation happens or, or does in people's lives. They've rejoiced over it in the congregation. They're partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partaker here is a different word than sharer in the Holy Spirit that is in Colossians and in 2 Peter that's talking about believers. It, what's described here is an association with the Holy Spirit, not a possession. These professors had been around when the Spirit was moving. They had seen it. They'd been among the church where the Holy Spirit was moving and working and doing the, the miracles that were happening. Just as the multitude was with Jesus and they got to eat of the bread and the fish, though they did not follow Jesus. They had been in the congregation when the Holy Spirit had moved. They tasted the good word. They'd heard the word preached and the power of the Spirit been intrigued and, and affected by the word of God. Had felt the power of God's word going forth. They tasted the powers of the age to come. They'd seen the kingdom of God breaking through the miracles that were happening, the wonders that were being done. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, it says, God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. They had been witness to the powers of the kingdom age. Listen, when I tell you the description, the explanation of these descriptions, if I were in your position listening to me, I know what I would say. I would say, Jason, it sure sounds like you're trying real hard to fit your theology into what that text actually says. That's what I would be saying. There's a reason for that. I would say, there's, you, you can say that and I understand, but you can't take away the fact that those descriptions sound like they're talking about Christians. There's a reason for that. Every believer in Jesus Christ, I'm talking about a born again, eternally secure, spirit indwelled believer can be described by everything you see right there. Every believer has experienced those things. Every single one. As the Spirit drew you, if you're a believer, to salvation, you were enlightened. You tasted the good word. You saw the works of the Holy Spirit. 
The road that every believer traveled that led them to trust in Jesus, to be born again, and to be filled with the Spirit is described exactly like this. The people described here that fall away were on the same road that every believer traveled on their way to being born again. The only difference is they fell away without entrusting Christ and being born again. Okay, but how do you know that? Aren't you just fitting your theology into the text? How can you say that these descriptions could apply both to Christians and church members and, and both to Christians and church members, but the, the writer of Hebrews is using it just for those who are not saved and fell away? How can you say that? I can say that because verse 7 and 8 tell me so. The parable, the illustration that he uses to explain this text. For the land that has drunk the rain and often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. You see what he's saying? They had received the same rain that you did. Two lands here, really. Well, one land, but both lands, the good land that produces the fruit and receives the blessing and the bad land that produces the thorns and the thistles, whatever that is. Both received the same rain. Both received the same benefit of the gospel being preached, of the Holy Spirit moving around them, of the effects of seeing salvation and the word going forth. Both the bad land that's end is to be burned and the good land that produces and receives a blessing from God, both received the same rain. That's why I can say to you that what he's describing in those who fall away, he tells me by his illustration that explains it, that they're not believers. Are you with me? Okay. It's the best I can do. These descriptions that are on this slide, that are in your Bible from, chat, from verse 4 to verse 5, that's the rain that falls upon the land. The rain falls upon the land and the good land produces fruit. The bad land produces thorns and thistles. And they have fallen away. They have produced thorns and thistles. The, these descriptions are the rain that falls on the land. Though they had received the same blessings, the same benefits of hearing and seeing the gospel, the writer said in verse 9, these things describing them are not the better things that belong to salvation that he expects of his readers, you. So I am interpreting these descriptions in the context in which the writer has outlined. And to be honest, we all have, I mean, we all know biblical examples of people who could be described with these participles, just like that, who were not believers. Judas is the, the main one that comes to mind. He stood among the 12, performing miracles and preaching the gospel. He saw people delivered, saw the miracles, saw the working of the Spirit. Even Judas even healed people. 
I mean, when Jesus sent the 12, when he sent them out two by two, and they all came back and said, we've seen the power of God, and, and, and people, demons are subject to us. They, they were telling Jesus all this. They didn't say, we, we did great, and God moved. Well, all except that Judas guy, he's got some issues. You probably need to talk to him a little bit. No, he was doing the same things that they were doing. And he fell away. Simon the magician in Acts 8. We went through the book of Acts before Galatians. Demas, uh, the Paul's companion. In one of his letters, he says, Demas is a great worker with me. God, and he's uh, my companion in the ministry. And at the end of, of 2 Timothy, he said, Demas has left me loving this present world. Fallen away. The parable of the sower, Jesus tells, gives us four soils. People who receive the word. And two of those soils, the rocky soil and the thorny soil, he says, they receive the word with joy and believe for a time, but there is no root, and so they fall away. So those described here are not born again, but they look like it, they sound like it, they act like it, probably even believe that they are. Just like the example the writer gave us in chapter 3 and chapter 4, these professing Hebrew believers are just like the wilderness generation. They tasted the manna. They heard the voice from the mountain, the voice of God from the mountain. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw the pillar of cloud, saw the pillar of fire, received the blessing of the quail and the, the food from God, the water from a rock, but they never trusted in God and turned away when he was about to bring them into the promised land and they died in the wilderness. These are people that are devoted to the church who moved and lived in Christian fellowship and had done so for a long time. They could be any of us in here. And remember, in the first century, the only way that a person could be described with these five descriptions, the only way is if they were in regular, consistent fellowship and part of a local church. Remember, there weren't any Christian podcasts. There weren't any internet radio sermons. There weren't any Christian books to read. The only way to be enlightened, see the power of God in this way, hear the good word of God was to be in the church. This is a warning for those who are in the church. Now let's look at the content. It says, for it is impossible at the beginning, and then it describes these people. And verse 6 says, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That's scary. That's a scary warning for sure. But honestly, it's not a new subject in the book of Hebrews. He's been talking about a hardened heart for a long time. First, let's define what we're talking about here. Apostasy. That's the big word. It means falling away. Apostasy is a complete turning away from God's revealed truth in Jesus Christ with full knowledge. It's a willful repudiation of the gospel. Apostasy is not falling into sin. It's not committing a certain sin. Or certain sins. Apostasy is not even telling God in a fit of anger, I don't want you anymore, and then later repenting. Peter denied Jesus with a curse and was restored. 
Apostasy is not something you can fall into by accident. It's not something you can commit in ignorance. Many today are are overwhelmed with guilt or fear, thinking they've committed some sin or done something that has once for all separated them from God's grace permanently. Listen, if you feel conviction, if you feel the guilt, the fear of that, and desire to repent and be made right in Jesus Christ, that's proof that you haven't committed apostasy. The apostate is not someone who really, really, really wants to repent and God just won't let me. There's no such animal. The apostate doesn't want to repent. They don't want to turn to Christ. They don't care. They're not sitting around going, oh, I wish I could. No, they don't care. And it says it's impossible to renew them to repentance They will not repent. And their hearts have been hardened against it. What the writer's been warning about the whole book. Apostasy then is the willful rejection of the gospel after seeing all there is to see, hearing all there is to hear, and having the evidence of the truth spiritually discerned to them. This warning is not just theoretical. And it's not hypothetical either. The author isn't saying, now if they fall away, they can't be restored to repentance, but it's okay because they can't really fall away anyway. No, that, that, that's the opposite of a warning. No, they had already, this had already happened. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Many of these professing Hebrew Christians had gone back to Judaism. They'd left and they'd gone back rejecting Christ and gone back to the old ways after hearing, understanding, professing the gospel and spending years in the church, they had gone back. They had given up on the church, given up on Christ and they had gone back to the old religion and were right now, as he's writing, enjoying the ease and the comfort of a life without persecution while these Hebrew Christians continued to suffer. That's why they were being tempted to go with them. This is a real warning and a real danger because those who had apostatized, who had left, they were those who everybody would have looked at and said, man, I know that they know Jesus. They were once those who said, that'll never happen to me. This warning is real and it's for you and it's for me. Even so, impossible to renew? I mean, come on, man. Doesn't that seem overly harsh? Think about the presentation that this author's made in this text. These folks understand the gospel. They've they've seen the power of the Spirit, heard the fulfillment of the Scriptures, seen transformed lives seen kingdom miracles, knowing that it's true that the message is fulfilled and with full knowledge say, I reject that. I don't want it. They had heard God's voice, as it were, and had hardened their hearts. The preacher, the evangelist, the word of God, the other Christians, they had no other message to proclaim to them. 
They'd heard it all. They'd seen it all. They'd experienced it all. Christ had been set before them. They understood. They saw the evidence. There's nothing left to tell them. I know what I would think if I was sitting in your position. Hold on, Jason. God broke through Paul's heart. Paul knew the message. Paul knew the gospel. He was persecuting all the folks that were preaching it. He'd heard Stephen's sermon. Paul knew all about it. And God broke him and broke through his hardened heart on the road to Damascus. Can't God do that here? Of course he can. He certainly can and he often does. We cannot take this passage, look at someone else and say, oh, well, that person's beyond redemption. How dare you? You don't know. God can and does bring people back from their unbelief, bring people back from their hardness of heart. But neither can you disregard the severity of this warning. Just as in Romans 1, there is a time that God turns people over to what their heart desires. Three times in Romans chapter 1, it says the people exchanged the truth of God for a lie and God gave them up. That's scary. And it's meant to be scary. But why is this so severe here? Why is it so final the way that he expresses it? It just doesn't seem fair. Oh, you be careful asking for what's fair. God doesn't owe us anything. And we can't minimize the sin that he's describing here. Look at why it's impossible to renew them to repentance. He says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Shame. Make sure that you understand what these he professing Hebrew Christians going back, forsaking Christ and going back to Judaism means. Returning to the law, returning to the temple, returning to the sacrifices. These individuals were not going back to being Old Testament Jews like before Pentecost. They know Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. They have seen the power of the Spirit of God who has been poured out upon His people. They have seen the new kingdom age working in miracles and signs and wonders. To turn away from Christ after knowing and understanding the fullness of the gospel is worse than being in the crowd of people who yelled before Pilate, crucify him. It's worse than being one of the men who stood there on Golgotha and actually nailed the nails into his hands and feet. Even though those people were indeed guilty of their sin, at least you could say, well, they were ignorant. Not realizing he was the son of God. In fact, Jesus on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
These individuals had full knowledge of Christ's priesthood, his sacrifice, his salvation, the fulfillment of the resurrection, the kingdom of God. They know he is the son of God. Raised from the dead, glorified and crowned at the right hand of the Father. And with all of that, they choose to pass the same verdict on Christ that those who crucified him passed. They choose to line themselves up with those who crucified Jesus. These apostates, these people who had fallen away, had rejected Christ. They know the fullness of it all and say, even after having all the evidence and knowing the truth of the gospel, my verdict about Jesus is the same as those men who crucified him. He is nothing. And I'm going back to my religion. It says it's impossible to renew them to repentance. They've been given the fullness of the message, seen the power of the kingdom. Writer says it is impossible for these people so enlightened, having fallen away, to restore them to repentance because they've taken their stand with the crucifiers of Jesus and hardened their hearts to the gospel. To explain this further, the writer uses the parable that we read earlier, very similar to Jesus' parable of the sower. For the land that has, he says, possible to renew them to repentance because they're crucifying Jesus again to their own shame, lifting him up to contempt because for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Listen, that sounds just like Jesus' parable of the sower. Notice, once again, both lands, the good and the bad, receive the same rain. Same message is given to both of these people. Same witness of the gospel. All those descriptions in verse 4, verse 5, that's the rain. Believers received it. Those who rejected it. The land that receives these things and produces fruit receives blessing. And the land that produces thorns and thistles, its end is to be burned. Now, though this, little, this illustration sounds like Jesus' parable of the sower, for a Hebrew reader, for someone who is steeped in the Old Testament, who grew up understanding the law, hearing the law, understanding the prophets, hearing the prophets, I think, this is just my opinion, I think that their minds would, before they go to Jesus' parable of the sower, I think they would go more quickly to Isaiah chapter 5, where God says this. He says, let me sing, Isaiah says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choice of vines, built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat on it. He looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. He did all those things. He sent the rain. He says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? It says, And now I will tell you what I'll do with my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow upon it. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. No more rain. That's the writer of Hebrews' point in this warning. 
They had received the rain and rejected it. Now, I'm sure you're glad you came this morning. <clears throat> all this, this warning that he gives, it's, it's all doom and gloom and misery on me. I understand. But remember the author's point to us. This is a real warning. But it's not meant to make you despair and fearful. When you see a warning sign on the highway as you're driving, you don't pull over to the side of the road and say, well, look, there's a warning. I'm going to die. Might as well just sit here. That's not the intent of the warning. The warning is intended to make you watchful, to make you cautious, so you go forward with care, understanding the danger that's here. There is, this is a warning sign urging you to do what the writer of Hebrews has told you to do ever since we started this book, hold fast to Christ. So in the end, he gives his readers encouragement, yes, encouragement from this warning. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. What I've just described is them, those things don't belong to salvation. Now I'm talking to you and we're assured that the things that belong to salvation are yours. And he says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He says, these things are not what we expect for you. He returns here to speaking about you, not them, not those, not they, but you. We're talking about you, the beloved, those who are loved. And we're sure that the things belonging to salvation are true of you. He says, God is not unjust to overlook your work, the fruit that you've produced from the rain that has fallen upon you. It's not in vain that you're holding fast in the midst of all the suffering that you're going through. Now, verse 10 may sound like he's saying, well, well if, you, if you are good enough and you produce enough and you do good enough, God won't overlook that. God's going to take your work in, in account when he saves you. But that, that work here in verse 10 is the fruit of their salvation. Look what it says in the text. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. The work is serving the saints, and the love that you have shown for his name. How have they shown their love for his name? By the work that they have done, by serving the saints. The love that you have shown, for, they love his name. That's their heart. The new heart loves Jesus. And that's the reason they work. That's the reason they serve the saints. The writer's saying, look, we see the fruit of your life produced as the rain of God's gospel benefits has been poured down upon you. So we don't think this of you. We think the things that belong to salvation for you. And then he comes to the reason why he has given this warning in the first place. He says, we, we don't desire that you just be terrified and in despair all the time. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, dull, as he says earlier. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. The warning isn't here for you to be paralyzed with fear. It isn't here to make you despair. This is a warning to keep you striving to enter into his rest, what he said to us earlier, to keep you holding on to your hope in Jesus. 
not to harden your heart when you hear God's voice. We desire, he says, we desire that you would show the same earnestness and full assurance of hope to the end. We don't want you to be doubting everything all the time. You have full assurance of hope. We want you to be earnest in keeping it to the end. Do you see it? Strive to enter his rest. Hold fast to your confession. All of the commands that he's given us. Don't be sluggish, dull of hearing. This is why the warning is here. Don't be dull of hearing. The command of this section is go on to maturity. That's the command. Don't turn from Christ. Be imitators of those who look at it. Inherit the promises through faith and patience. Endurance is what we might say. You see the point he's making? By faith you receive the promise. The evidence of the promise is that you endure to the end. The writer of Hebrews is telling the reader the same thing he's told them all the way through this letter. In chapter 3, verse 6, we looked at these in chapter 3. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold on to our original confidence firm to the end. This is not new. This warning is not new ground. It's the same thing he's told us over and over and over again. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, which is the most debated and discussed passage in all of the Scripture, probably, is not a lecture teaching us the, the elements of eternal security. This is a pastor standing before his congregation who is flirting with the temptation of falling away, some of whom are saved, some of whom aren't deceived and think they are saved. And he's saying to all of them, don't go back. Hold on to Jesus. Make your calling and election sure, as Peter says in his letter. Trust in Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. Those who went out from among us are not of us. 1 John 2, 19. He's saying the same thing he said all the way through the letter. The same thing that the New Testament teaches. This is a real warning for all of us here. The rain of the gospel benefits has poured out all over your life. What is the fruit that your life is producing? Let me tell you something. I know I'm over time, but I don't care. I apologize in the first service and some lady said, don't do that. So I ain't doing it. <laughs> based on God's word, based on the truth of God's word, I'm, I want you to hear me right here. I've preached here for six years. I've been a pastor for 18 years. If I preach here another six years, another 10 years, 20 years, if I preach here 26 years and everything's just rocking right along, church grows to a thousand people, ministry is the greatest central Kansas has ever seen. And one day I show up and I say, you know what? I found another woman that I like. And I'm leaving all this Jesus stuff behind. You can bet, based on the word of God, Jason Vallada has never been a Christian. Even as he preached and thundered and yelled and slammed his Bible, he has never 
been a Christian. Unless God breaks my heart, turns me back to faith and repentance, you can bet with 100% assurance that I have never, it doesn't matter that I've preached for 20 years, it doesn't matter that I've told you truths from the Bible that really are true. If I turn from Christ, mark it down. On the day Jason preached what you ever thought that, that was the great sermon and God spoke, on that day he was lost as a golf ball in tall grass. You understand? You understand what I'm trying to tell you? It's a real warning. It's a real warning for us. Don't turn from Christ. Follow Jesus. Follow his word. And you will be secure to the end because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for the gospel. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be in despair. We don't have to be grieving or worrying all the time. We thank you for your gospel. But God, we also understand this warning. And we take it to heart. Help us to hold fast. For only you can. We can't hold fast. Help us to follow after you. For only you can. Help us to, help us to be faithful. God, we pray that your word would go forth. We pray that you would in power show us what we're to do with it this morning in our individual lives and in our individual families and if there's anyone here that doesn't know you that has not been living for you that has no desire to follow after you God I pray them you sh- that you would show them that they are lost and that they are under your judgment and that they would come to the cross receiving Jesus trusting in him entrusting their lives to him to you Jesus and that they would be saved today God, we love you and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to stand right down here at the front. If you want to come, I'd love to pray with you. Will you stand with me?